Well, you've just noticed that I've had a double batch of prayer there, um, and if I tell you that I haven't actually done this preaching thing for a couple of years now, because Toby, my youngest, is about a year and a half, you probably know that we're going to need God's grace here this morning. Um, so I'm going to actually kick off by praying as well. I want to pray for two different groups of people here. Um, I want to pray first for those people who know the Lord, who are following him already, and today you're going to see that... Um, Actually, this sermon isn't lots about extolling how great God is. It's it's got um, bits to do with the cross in there, because every sermon has to, but it doesn't really come back to it as the focus all the time. This week's sermon really is the practical skills of actually going out there and loving. So Lord, I want to pray for all the people who know you here, that actually we would be equipped to go and to love better. We would actually just practically get better at loving other people. And Lord, I want to pray that the glory would go to you because actually your love increases in the world. And Lord, I want to pray also for those people who don't yet know you, who aren't on this journey with you yet. I want to pray first of all that actually they would be touched by the practical love of people in your church as imperfect as it is. I want to pray that actually that would be useful. But Lord, most of all, I want to pray that this morning they would receive a touch, a taste of your perfect love, your unconditional love through what comes today, through the worship we've had, through what happens for the rest of the morning. Amen. Okay, let's get into this then. Welcome to the third week of Paracletus journeying together. We've looked back in week one for those people who haven't been here all the way through, at caring. We saw that caring is really, really countercultural, And that we have a stark choice. And that choice is between looking after ourselves or looking after others. As we worked day by day through the guide that's disappeared off of here. I was just going to wave one up, but um, most of you can see one of those. Thank you. As we look through this day by day, then what we actually saw there was if we look to look after ourselves first, that way doesn't bring satisfaction, that way actually brings misery. And the reason for that, it told us, was that God designed us to care for others. It's only when we actually crucify our own desires and we use God's grace to live for other people, that we will be fulfilled because that's what we're called to do. This is why it's countercultural. And then last week we looked at loving. To care or not to care was the question last week. And we explored how Jesus had this amazing compassion for other people and how that made him irresistibly attractive to people. People flocked to see him. This is the sign by which the church will be judged. It says, that's scary. If we don't love one another, then people will not be attracted to the church. Even if they set foot inside the church, if they see that it's all just front, rather than actually a deep and real care for one another, they will just walk out again. Because they see it's fake. Our care has got to be authentic as well as being public. We're called to both of those things. That was summed up in the text midweek as preach the gospel and if you have to, use words. I think we can usefully get from that the fact that our actions need to back up the gospel completely. 
From the start, I want to make clear that this week, it's a message again about care and love, but it very much extends to caring and loving for those people both inside and outside the church. Everything I'm saying is about those two different groups of people. This week, we come to the heart of the series. Today is called The Journey. And this week's key verse is the one on the front of the guide. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else going through hard times. So that we can be there for that person, just as God was there for us. Lots of people have used a physical journey from A to B as a metaphor, an analogy for life. John Bunyan famously did that in the Pilgrim's Progress. That was from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And he went through lots and lots of struggles similar to the ones that we face in our lives. Along his journey, various people came alongside him. They helped him. They encouraged him. They consoled him. They corrected him. And with their help, that God sent help, Christian does make it to his destination. I'll just remind you that we've been told in this course already that we are called to go and do likewise. We've got to be those helpers for other people. Before we look at the example Jesus gives us of doing just this, we're going to have a look at three features of the journey of life. The first of those is the challenge of the journey. I probably don't need to spend very long on this one. This is just saying that the journey is hard. Life is a struggle at some times. Um, there's a text in, in, uh, in the guide, in the sermon bit for this week, um, from Hosea. When God speaks through that prophet to his people, the unfaithful people who have rejected him despite everything that he's done for them, he reminds them of when he wooed her back in the wilderness, this hard place they were living in. And they were there after having had 400 years of slavery. Life is hard. But he talks in the message version of the Bible about turning Heartbreak Valley into acres of hope. When we see other people facing the challenges of life, then we are not called to bemoan the fact and say how unfair. We are called to act and actually to bring hope into that situation like God is doing with his people in the Old Testament. And we've already had this, but in Psalm 23... David famously describes a challenging part of his life, the journey of life that he's going through. He says even though he walks through the valley of death, God is with him on the journey and does comfort him. Go and do likewise. The second aspect of life as a journey we're going to look at is really the core, the heart of what this week has to say to us. So I'll spend a little bit more time on this one. The resource of journey How can we do this? How can we help people? Some of these challenges that people are facing are really, really hard. They're bleak. They could be family crisis, marriage failure, divorce, bereavement, childlessness, business problems, debt, redundancy, ill health, maybe a terminal diagnosis, mental health problems. There's so many other things I've not listed there. These are really serious problems problems that people are going through all the time one of the gifts that God gives us so that we can respond 
is the sum of all of the journeys that we've been through already. Between us as a church, we've lived a really, really long time. If you stack up all the years, and some of us are contributing more than others, there are thousands of years of experience of life in this room. Thousands in the church, including people currently out serving in other ways. We have, between us, similar experiences. We've been through difficult things together. And God wants us to bring that to bear, to bring that experience to help other people. Trevor Partridge, who wrote this entire course, describes this very nicely as an untapped reservoir of vast life experience in the church. And this is biblical. 2 Corinthians starts with the fact that we've been through hard times, but it then moves on to the fact that we're being brought alongside someone else. It happens in that order. And it also fits with common sense. The longest journey I've been on in a time sense rather than physically the number of miles was walking 200 miles across England from one side to the other. Please do not be put off giving 25 quid to James. I will not be navigating on the men's walking weekend. It will be shorter than that. But it was an entire fortnight of just getting up and walking, going to bed, getting up, walking. And there were times where that was physically hard. That was really challenging. There were times where I just wanted to give up. Or at the very least, I wanted to just stop there and wait there until the next day. Having one other person literally walking alongside me for those two weeks, because I did it as part of a pair, was so, so useful. It helped during the difficult times to help me keep on going. Actually, although it's not part of what I'm meant to be saying, it also made the good times more memorable. And we should remember that as well. And it's the same with the journey of life. Anyone Coming alongside makes a real difference. And someone who's walked that bit of the walk before or climbed a similarly steep path out of a deep valley is potentially even better. So we can use this resource of journey. And then the third aspect, I've changed it slightly. If you're filling in your guides as you're meant to be doing, that, those red letters are not meant to be on the answer. But I actually prefer it like this. The process of journeying, because this isn't a one-off, two-minute conversation, sticking your head out the window as someone journeys past, and then they're gone. This is an ongoing process. This journey keeps on going on. Now, there is a place for a two-minute catch-up in the business after church. You cannot have a deep conversation with every single person. But the whole point is that this is talking about coming alongside somebody else and journeying alongside them as well. Galatians talks about us picking up a burden and taking the weight of it. We then walk alongside the other person in the direction that they are going. For some distance. A long-term commitment. And that makes things easier for them. Over a sustained period of time. As we talk about journeying together, we are talking about going through life together. And I love the tagline for the life groups that we've had at Sutton Family Church, which is doing life together, or has been at some point. That sums it up. That's the context in which this support can actually really happen. And then... Just at the bottom of this slide, um, our take on the word paraclesis, a slightly different um, version of it this week. We've looked at the meanings of empathy, but 
ethos or culture in the last two weeks. This week, we can think briefly about Luke 2 and Jesus being taken to the temple, presented, and an old man, a prophet, Simeon, taking him into his arms, blessing him. Because Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, it says. That's a strange verse, and actually I've never really thought about what it means before picking up on this reference, preparing for today. Jesus, even as a baby, is recognised to be the one who brings consolation. The one who soothes hurts, brings calm or ease, one who gives rest. Really, really one who brings hope. We're reminded that Jesus is Emmanuel. Maybe we can phrase that as God journeying with us. The opposite of consolation, which is what this means, is disconsolate, a word that you'll hear a few more times. It brings to mind loss, grief, sorrow, disappointment, hopelessness. And that is exactly the condition that two disciples who meet Jesus on the Emmaus Road are in before Jesus journeys with them. Let's find out a bit more about how Jesus models the key principles of how to console other people by connecting, by listening, and only then care-fronting and talking in our Bible text for this week. It's entitled The Long Walk Home. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. There is a lot that we can learn about how to approach a conversation, even through these very short verses. And from Jesus' first actions, after the resurrection, we can learn about his key priorities. If you think about it, the first thing he does after the resurrection is appearing to a group of women who go to his tomb. Those women at that time legally would not have been recognised as witnesses because they were female. And actually, forget the legal sense of it, when they go to the disciples, we are told their report was dismissed as sheer imagination. Jesus did not choose to appear to those women first because it would help the legal case for him having risen again. He doesn't appear to them to convince the disciples because that doesn't happen. I think we find that Jesus is more interested in the grieving person than the legal formalities of the day. And he seems to want to fix the broken heart before he later works on the minds who've got the wrong idea about what's happened and about him. I think we need to learn from that. His second act, though, is he now chooses to journey alongside two grieving disciples who are really going through it. We see straight away that actually these two disciples don't yet know about the future. They don't have the correct future in their heads. They don't have that proper hope yet because they don't know what's going on. They haven't understood. But actually it's their past and their present that are filling their minds at this time. They're talking about and they're going over this idea of a living memory. Essentially, that's all of the relevant things that have happened in their past life, in their collective memory. 
In this case, the two disciples are talking over both their personal memories of having been with Jesus while he was alive and their knowledge of his death on the cross and his burial. But they're also talking about the centuries-old prophecies about one who would redeem Israel. If we confine our interest in other people just to the immediate and ignore their past, we will be missing a large bit of the picture. And actually, we'll probably stop a deep connection being formed. As well as looking at the events of the past, the two disciples are also discussing this present reality. And this is not just the most recent events that have happened. Actually, this is a phrase to describe part of human nature. Um, It's put like this. When we're struggling with a situation, we play things over and over again in our minds. It's almost like we're looping a tape and we go round and round again. If we've just had a conversation that's gone badly, we play it out again in our minds, trying to think, what should we have said? And actually, often, we spend time thinking about conversations and how exactly we're going to phrase them, and those conversations probably won't even happen. We waste loads of time on this. We, we've done all this rehearsal, which never gets used. When I read this part of the notes, I was so glad it's not just me who does that. <laughs> it really is a bit of human nature. Psychologists have a term for this. They call it the inner monologue. Jesus shows us there is a better way. It's to have that internal monologue turned into a real dialogue because someone comes alongside us and converses with us and listens to us while they journey alongside us. And actually, from the way that Jesus enters the long physical journey, the seven-mile walk, there are lots of things we can learn just from that. He builds connection and commitments. He builds rapport with them. He allows personal space. Physically, Jesus seems to gently catch up and he unobtrusively joins this party. He falls naturally into step with them. He does not ambush them. He doesn't walk up boldly and barge in. He isn't getting right in their faces and invading their personal space. He isn't going to have his say quickly and then disappear, having disrupted the conversation, but he warms them up by wanting to listen. Our journeys and our conversations need to have this element. We won't console people, we won't bring consolation by hijacking and dominating conversations, and then being most interested in our time to talk, but we need to be gentle and attentive. We need to be prepared to take our time. It's at this point that the Bible passage actually turns explicitly to how Jesus models really good listening. He asked them, what are you discussing as you're walking along together? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb 
early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came out and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He listens to their story. The order needs to be emphasised. He listens first. His goal is not to be doing most of the talking. He actively asks them what they are talking about to prompt them to be the ones doing the talking. The exact way in which he does this suggests one approach we can take. Jesus uses a door opener. This is better known as an open-ended question as opposed to a closed question. The basic idea is it leads to a fuller response. It doesn't have a yes-no answer. And actually, as well as asking them for the content of their conversation, which is what that standard translation shows, an alternative translation reads, what kind of conversation are you having? Leading them to reflect on their emotions and feelings, not just on the facts. Now in verse 17, I'll just whiz back actually, Older translations accurately put the phrase, their faces downcast, actually not separately, but as part of the question that Jesus asked them along the top. And that makes this a bit easier to understand what's going on here. Jesus actually asked, what kind of conversation are you having looking so sad? And then they stood still. Jesus asked this, and by doing that, he's actually expressing empathy. The first thing is that he's noticed something about their demeanour. He's been watching for something deeper than just the words being said. He's picked up on their emotions and mood, because he's concentrating 100% on them, not on himself. And actually, then he does something with it, and this word reflecting isn't in the guide. It's not one of the answers to write in. Um, But he decides it's appropriate to reflect back to them. This is also called feeding back. The basic idea of this is that to show that he's listening, that he's paying attention, that actually he's understanding them, he chooses just to give some information back to them, just to say a few words so that they know that they're on track. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying, I sense you're feeling sad. And he does it gently, not in a brutal way. He doesn't say, come on, what's so bad? That would not be useful here. Just gently saying, I recognise that you're hurting, is really useful. Every situation needs to be taken on its own merits. Always doing this would be wrong, never doing it would be wrong. Day six in the guide, if you go through the individual days, actually talks about another use of reflecting, which is the, um, essentially the idea that when someone comes to the end of talking, you just paraphrase that back to them, say, can I just get this, have I understood, this is what I think you're saying. Again, that can be overused, but it can be really useful, because people know that you've been listening, and people know that they are understood, and knowing your situation is understood is really comforting. Now, these first two points remind me hugely of some secular training on listening that I've been through several times. Um, And I I think it's worth pointing out at this point that actually the fact that this is being done in the secular world, people being taught how to listen, that doesn't mean this isn't valuable for the church to hear. Just because the world is catching up on what Jesus was modelling 2,000 years ago 
doesn't mean that we shouldn't have been doing it for 2,000 years and hopefully quite a lot better. The same is true about leadership. Ten years ago or so, there was a, a big business book kind of on leadership coming out of Harvard, nothing to do with the church, called Servant-Hearted Leadership for business leaders. They're catching up there as well. Without the power of Jesus, it's never going to work as well. But it's got almost a validation that, that people are talking about these ideas out there in the world. Um, actually, what I remember from those courses are two things. The first of them is when they invite audience members to go up and try out doing some listening. The rules are really clear. You have to just listen and not talk. You have to keep your mouth closed. Try to reflect body language. Try to hold on eye contact well. All of those are individual tips that you actually see. If you go, Some of them have come up already in the first two weeks. There were tips about trying to make eye contact and how long to do it for. And it seems a bit patronising, but we need to be good at doing that sort of thing. And what I've noticed is that actually someone comes up fairly confident. They sit down ready to listen. And they're really great at talking. They're fantastic at actually discussing their own experiences which aren't that similar to the one that's being talked about. And they've got a handy list of 10 prepackaged solutions to offer when they're not meant to be doing that. The second thing that often happens is you get stuck in a group of three people. And one of you just sits back and watches the other two. One's meant to be talking, one's meant to be listening. And then at the end of five minutes, you just spend a minute feeding back, how did that work? My conclusion from this, I think, is probably quite relevant. It may not be true of every single person, but people, as a country, we are rubbish at listening. We are absolutely useless at it. And actually, that's why I think this is important. These practical ideas are important because we need to be better, because it's a way of showing love and helping people. It's a well-known statistic that if you pick on any one of a multitude of skills and you ask people to rate themselves as either being below average, average or above average, 8 out of 10 of them will say they are above average, even though that's not possible. And actually, that's still true if the question asked is, how good are you at judging how good you are at things? And I've got to do this even with the church. That probably reflects us as well. I almost put a joke in here about how I know I'm one of the ones who's really good, so that means you know, it's even less of you. But the problem, I couldn't really do, do it properly because I realised that that actually is my heart attitude. It's not something to joke about because I, I genuinely do think I'm quite good at listening. I think I'm probably better than most people listening. It affects all of us. And actually, in the church, we are showed to call uh, to show, called to show humility. And if we do that, then we will get better at this and we will help more people more deeply. We've got to be countercultural, essentially. Going back to the road to Emmaus, look how vulnerable Jesus makes himself in this. He doesn't use his perfect knowledge of the situation, the fact that he knows he is Jesus and he has risen from the dead. Instead, by playing dumb, he gives the disciples, those two disciples on the road, a chance to tell their story. But he risks their anger. Are you serious? Are you the only person who doesn't know about this, they say? Are you the only person who doesn't have a clue? Maybe anger at his simple question isn't exactly rational, but grieving people are not going to be rational. We have to do the same as Jesus and show no self protection 
when we engage in a journey with somebody who is hurting. If we go into a conversation ready to walk away in a self-righteous way, oh, I gave them a chance to, um, to talk to me, they just threw it back in my face. If we go in prepared to do that rather than accept the hurt, we are not listening the way that Jesus listens. By continuing to act as if he doesn't have all of the answers, Jesus also ensures that he's not intrusive. He could skip out the listening section completely. But actually, he allows them space. He allows them to open up. He allows them to reflect on their experiences and their feelings. And he lets them start to order their thoughts by doing this talking. He values their experience and he values their emotions. He just journeys with them as they offload and they express their pain. And this works. After describing the facts, they open up more. Their statement, we hoped he was the one, shows is moved beyond them just reciting back the facts because actually Jesus has let them tell their story and that includes the heart response to all of the events that have happened. Now the couple of slides that tell this Bible story don't begin to tell the full picture of what happens on this full three hour long walk. They may have taken an hour to get to this point in reality. This is not the short conversation it looks like. Trevor Partridge asks, how long did this part of the journey goes on for? And then gives the answer, but it's not expressed in miles or hours. He simply says, as long as it takes. Jesus is not in a rush. How many of us can say that? We need to actually model that we need not to be in a rush the whole time he gives them as long as they need to fully unburden their hearts there are two nice phrases from this part of the course that i just want to share with you it's also fresh to them so he just lets them keep talking you see they want to talk through all the pain while they journey with a consoler and they wanted the stranger to know and understand their broken world. They want that empathy, that understanding. I think most of us will feel that there are times when listening to someone and letting them unburden their hearts is all that we should be doing for them at that particular time. It might be more appropriate to pray for them when we're alone later on rather than offering to pray for them at that point. There's an example given in day five of this week, if you go through this, um, from Trevor about when he needed just to listen to somebody and then sit with them, not speaking for half an hour in a room, and then he was free to leave. Someone just needed someone to physically be with them with neither of them speaking. An experience that I know I've been through in the case of bereavement, that is something that really, really helps a lot of the time. There's actually been a poster up um, towards the top of the one-way system um, in Sutton that kind of expresses this in a different way. Um, it's from one of the cancer charities. Um, it happens to use the name Keith. It's not a reflection of on Keith standing there, but it's along the lines of, it was amazing. Keith just invited me to go and play pool with him. He didn't mention anything to do with the cancer. People just want to be treated normally. They want to spend some time. And we've got to be doing that. 
The cliche to use here would be that love is spelt T-I-M-E, but Jesus shows exactly that here. Moving on to the second real big theme of this sermon, of this week, of this part of the course, the journey. There will be times, however, where we want to go on and do the same thing as Jesus now does with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He gets them to see the situation differently. He injects some um, some hope, as well as help, into their worldview because he does this thing called care fronting. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I first saw this, when I first heard this word, I wasn't even sure it existed. I thought it made it up. But actually, if you're currently tempted to do some Googling, you'll find out that within the first 10 hits, there's a link to a sermon that's nothing to do with this church, this, this sermon series, and that actually there's a link to a dictionary definition of it. It literally is just sticking together two words. Fairly obviously, care and the second one, confront. It means to caringly confront somebody. This is about a difficult conversation, but not a harsh one. Now, this, this topic has some notes, and the first two words in those notes is not confrontational. And that almost seems to clash with the literal meaning, because... The explanation given in this guide is that care fronting shows concern for the individual. Not just, I think the word just is important there, not just challenging the issue. It is not so much trying to change people as trying to help them see themselves and circumstances more accurately. I believe the message here is that the tone of the conversation is not confrontational. 